The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. We often hear doom and gloom stories about the future of our society. Everything from economic collapse, power outages and inflation, to world wars. But despite these very real concerns, there are certainly reasons to be optimistic about what the future holds. Fascinating new technologies are being developed that have the potential to change the way we live and help solve the world's problems. But will these technological developments really drive an economic boom? Or will we be forced into a society where governments and corporations have complete control over our resources, wealth, and personal information? We have truly entered a digital age where concerns about privacy are prevalent and certainly not unwarranted, but can they be overcome? To discuss all this, I've invited Mark Mills to be my guest today. Mark began his career as an experimental physicist and development engineer in microprocessors and fiber optics, holding a degree in physics from Queen's University in Ontario. Today, he is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. He co-founded Montrose Lane Ventures, a tech-focused energy fund, and was chairman and CTO of ICS Technologies, helping take it public in 2007. Mark is author of various books, including The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. He's also host of the podcast, The Last Optimist. In 2016, Mark was named Energy Writer of the Year by the American Energy Society. Earlier, Mark was a technology advisor for Bank of America Securities and co-author of the Hoover Mills Digital Power Report, a tech investment newsletter. Mark also served in the White House Science Office under President Reagan and subsequently provided science and technology policy counsel to a variety of private sector firms, the Department of Energy, and U.S. research laboratories. So welcome to the show, Mark. Good to be here. Yeah. So what new technologies are currently being developed that can benefit society and improve our energy situation? Well, since you've conflated the two... <laughs> predicates benefit a society and improve our energy situation let me let me first stipulate that we don't currently have any kind of energy problem <laughs> it's, it, the, but we are going we're on track to manufacturing an energy problem uh, yeah <laughs> so so uh, by virtue of uh avoiding reality with regard to hydrocarbons but to, to, and I'm serious about that but to answer the question in the context I think of how I you might frame it with respect to my book uh, you know, that I've published, I've written. Uh, the, the emergence of sort of new classes of analytics capabilities, you know, not just AI and chat GPT, but the, the phenomenal uh, advances in, in reductions of costs of doing analytics uh, inexpensively in the cloud, that form of automation, if you like information automation, the emergence of new classes of robots which are just beginning to commercialize in ways that are genuinely useful and very different than the first era of robots, which are essentially bolted down automation machines, you know, mobile mm -hmm. robots. Uh, those two things alone are really consequential across the entire industrial 
ecosystem, including and especially things related to building energy machines and operating them. So I, we're we're about to enter an era, I believe, of a, one of the rare discontinuities where you have a sort of a step function change in capabilities, sort of comparable to what happened at the development of the internal combustion engine itself. It really changed the efficacy of machines that were prior to that were steam-based machines, which were you know bigger, heavier, harder to move around, and they're more limited applications. Going from external combustion to internal combustion sort of unleashed applications uh, and changed the productivity of the industrial sector. The same kind of thing being sort of a ham-handed analogy. If we go from computation that is essentially constrained in computers and hard to distribute in real time to you know, unleashing it on the edges, embedding it in machines. That's sort of the equivalent kind of revolution, industrial sector. And that that'll that'll be wealth creating. It's you know it's productivity enhancing. That improves energy efficiency. It improves our ability to do sensible things about protecting the environment. Uh, all, all of it, all of it's good. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, my comment about what we're currently doing in policy circles is promoting energy technologies that are essentially wealth destroying because they're more expensive than than what exists, as opposed to promoting technologies that are wealth creating, which is a synonym, synonym, of course, for enhancing productivity in machines. Mm -hmm. You mentioned analytics being done in the cloud. Could you tell us what are analytics and talk about the cloud? What is the cloud? Because some people may not know that. Yeah, well, the cloud is, of course, there's no formal definition, but when I, when I, what I choose to define it as is what it actually is. It's not a computer that you can access remotely per se to do computation the way in a spreadsheet you can do computations to get an answer. But you've sort of created a utility function for, for knowledge and inference. By utility function, I mean a, a utility is something that is inexpensive, accessible anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. And of course, what, what the cloud does, to use a simplistic example, of inference and advice as opposed to computation is what people do all the time now with their mapping. You know, if you ask <clears throat> the mapping function, you know that that function is not taking place just in your device. It's taking place in the cloud, creating, collecting information, not just about your location, but what's going on with traffic elsewhere, weather often, and other, other factors that go into it, giving you advice on how to go from where you are to where you wanna go. It doesn't mm-hmm. take you there, it just gives you advice. And it's not a calculation. It's not exactly, you know, it's it's based on real-time information. That's inference and advice giving, which is different than computation. If I extend that analogy into areas that are harder to do that, which is where the where the where the future is is taking us, on everything from manufacturing decisions and supply chains to medical uh, medical advice support to you know physicians and nurses on the front line. Uh, you know, in normal commerce where you are trying to make decisions based on complex factors in your supply chain and consumer behaviors downstream as the cloud, which is connected to all those features, gets better at collecting that information inexpensively and then mm-hmm. anonymously, if you like, disintermediating the data and giving you advice. You're, you're, the, you're on the front line, whether you're the hotel clerk trying to answer a question for a, a guest who says, could I get an upgrade? Well, you don't have to check with management because the management's job would be to look at complex variables. Mm-hmm. Cloud can, you know, inference computers can do that. 
So the cloud's a different thing, right? It uses the internet, it uses communications, uses computers, uses sensors, edge devices, but it, it's the integration of all that into a device giving um, in, a knowledge sort of amplifying central utility that's distributed widely. This is really different. I mean, it's as, it's as different from the internet as the internet was different from telephone networks, even though the, inter the internet used initially just the telephone networks. Right? C connecting uh, a web page to a consumer that can shop that way, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, yeah. That's the internet, but it's not the cloud. When, when you start getting advice, we all get this. You know, you, if you bought this, you might be interested in that. Okay, that's, yeah. that's advice and inference. Pretty ham-handed. Sometimes it's accurate, not always, but that feature is clearly different than computation. And that's okay. what I mean by cloud. So would the cloud actually be a form of AI? Well, the, again, the cloud would use AI. Mm, so okay. you don't always need artificial intelligence and machine learning to, to do some of these functions. But, the, but often the artificial intelligence or so-called AI features of, of algorithms are extremely important to advice and inference giving. What AI does, machine learning does, is it, it gives you the an answer that might be right, probably right, in the right direction. Just, again, an analogy. We use computers and artificial intelligence to navigate a vehicle or a robot because you don't need an answer equal to two plus two equals four. You don't need a precise answer. As mm -hmm. You want to navigate the same way we humans navigate. You want to be pretty close to the right place in the road, but you don't have to be an exact, like, like a railroad track place mm -hmm. to have safe driving. That that outcome is closer to inference, right, than it is to calculation. Mm -hmm. So, where are the servers located that the cloud runs on? Well, so data centers are the sort of the, if you like the, the beating heart of the cloud. Typically, um, data centers are giant buildings that the size of shopping malls, which oh, wow. typically have no human beings in it. They can be a million square feet under roof and full of computer servers, storage devices, and uh, you know, inference engines, AI, AI chips and server racks. There are, these, these are buildings that have as much uh, area under roof as a skyscraper. Yeah. There are thousands of those data centers in the world. We're building them by the hundreds more per year, far faster rate than we're building skyscrapers. So it's sort of the invisible part of the infrastructure. The, the other part of that infrastructure that's invisible, of course, is how we connect to it, which is uh, the buried cables and the invisible wireless networks. And those networks, you know, the information highway, if you like, already comprise a system as an infrastructure that's roughly uh, a thousand times bigger in route miles than the global physical highway system. Wow, wow. So who is building all these cloud centers? Well, the private companies. Amazon's the biggest, the biggest, uh, the biggest utility provider. You know, Google, uh, Oracle. Uh, you know, there's all there are there are hundreds of small companies, and there's about a dozen big companies that build data centers. And a lot of them are, are privately owned, big big organizations, often for for reasons of security or proximity. Banking, banking organizations, for example, do financial transactions within their own. Uh, wholly owned uh, data centers, but they function operationally the same way the cloud does or cloud data centers, but they're not publicly accessible data centers uh, for obvious security 
reasons of nothing else. But it's a it's an entirely new ecosystem that just simply didn't exist uh, 20 years ago. It was a, a non-existent uh, non-existent part of the sort of civil infrastructure of our society um, up until the last decade or two. So would these be primarily Unix servers? Uh, like what kind of machines would they be? Well, there sure lots of them are Unix servers. Uh, there's there's a whole industry of Intel and Nvidia. Arm all compete in and providing the server side. But remember, the the server side is only one part of the uh, picture. If you have a, a data center, you're doing three things. One, you're you're routing things or routing things, depending on where you come from in the world, which is the server function. Where do I take the information? Who needs it? The collecting, routing uh, between memory edge devices. But you also have storage functions. Uh, mm -hmm massive storage requirements, not just for cat videos and <laughs> but huge, huge quantities of data being collected, traffic, for example, mm -hmm. uh, medical data increasingly. And then you obviously you have um, analytic functions, which are, you know, compute, uh, whether it's inference engines like NVIDIA's, uh, you know, deep so-called graphics processing units or classic computation. So mm -hmm. all, all those things are going on. So a server obviously is the the routing function is some of the calculation can be done native to the server, just like some of the storage can be done. But by and large, they're, they're you know they're functionally different functions, functionally different tasks. Um, much in the way if you think about you know if you a library has books in it, mm -hmm. uh, it if you're doing the analysis with your brain, you're the wetware, you're the analytic part. But getting to the library requires you to get in a car or a bus or ride a bicycle to it. All, all those all those functions uh, are, of course, uh, digitalized in the modern world. Yeah. So analytics then is actually equivalent to your brain in a library. Yeah. The, the, the biggest difference, of course, being that some of the functions the, the analytic tools can't do. So it's it's like the, the this is where the misnomer, but the word artificial intelligence comes in. It's much more like a, a way of enhancing your brain, much much as any other you know, mechanical tools enhance muscles uh, mm -hmm. or, you know, the fact that you ride a bicycle enhances your muscles doesn't mean that the bicycle uh, is a muscle uh, or an artificial leg. Uh, so much of the function in artificial intelligence in, in a information sense is much, is much more analogous to the way a bicycle and a gear set amplifies, uh, you know, your muscles. Mm -hmm. I see. So how would this technology actually improve our energy situation in particular? <laughs> well, I know we're, pre we're preoccupied these days with uh, changing our energy systems. Yeah. Um, well, so first off, um, you know, society's demand for energy is enormous and in my view, insatiable because uh, energy anchors everything. There's is obvious to state it, but it, it gets it gets forgotten. Not, no products or services exist without energy. It's just the wiring of the nature of the universe we live in. So everything requires energy to fabricate and everything requires energy to operate. And that includes humans. You know, we, we require, we require fuel in the form of food and machines require fuel yeah, their own food. So mm -hmm. that means that if society gets bigger, uh, we, we've got this astonishing, and we've had an astonishing growth in energy demand. The only only way we can ameliorate or mimi, you know, that the, minimize the magnitude of that growth because it's so big 
it's of course by being inherently more efficient, inherently more efficient how we get energy, distribute it, and use it, store it. Uh, that's always about advances in information, uh, and information about how to do it, information about how to manage it. Doesn't stop demand growth. In fact, it just it slows it. And maybe someday we stop demand growth. I don't I don't think that's going to happen personally, but you know we're guessing about the future. So if you think about the the whether you're whether you're trying to drill a well for oil and natural gas or whether you're trying to dig up a a mine site to produce neodymium, copper, and um, and other metals to make a, a wind turbine, whatever the task is, uh, information systems make the task more productive, more inter- more economically efficient, and ultimately lower the cost of the final energy product and machine or service. So mm-hmm. you need technology for all of it. The real issue for society is, you know, which of the features of how we can get energy to, energy to to humans and our machines, uh, which which features can do it at the least cost, but the highest level of reliability, delivering it when we need it, and mm-hmm. with the minimum impact to to the environment around us, because everything we do has impact on the environment. So the, the answers to that are always rooted in technology, which is why my sort of general thesis is that the advances in technology give us more options there. It, do, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't give us the outcomes we necessarily want. <laughs> so for, for example, the idea that that's, you know, wind and solar are cheaper than hydrocarbons, uh, it's just not the case. Uh, but it is the case that technology has made them a lot cheaper than they ever were. And mm-hmm. they have far, far more applicability entirely because of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now, just taking a step back and looking at it a little bit more theoretically, can you give our listeners an idea of the three primary technology domains and how they're driving an economic boom? Yeah, well, you know, the the, the next the next boom is predictable because there's always cycles with booms. So it's an easy out, right? The real question is, when does it happen? And, you know, I've got a subtitle about the roaring 2020s because I think I think we're on the cusp of, a, of the next boom, and I think it will emerge in the 2020s. But the, the three primary technology domains are the ones that have been, are how you can categorize all technology advances over all of civilization's history. And they, you, everything that we we build, we build and invent. And of course, humans are inherently inventing animals. We invent things. That's what we do. It's what we yeah. technology is not external to being human. It's the nature of being human. That's what we do. So we invent ways to make machines to provide services that are that don't just matter to survival, but to you know entertainment and comforts and all those things and conveniences. But there's just three features of technology that matter. One is our is the, is the information feature. Every, every, you know we have to understand the nature of nature and the nature of the machines you're trying to build. So that's, we'll call that information acquisition and, and information processing. And that involves both technologies and of course the the acquisition of knowledge to get that information. You know, studying nature requires machines and tools and technologies to understand nature. So the whole information acquisition and understanding domain. If we were being simplistic today, that'd be computers and microprocessors, but it's more than that, right? It's the, the second sphere of of technologies that determine everything that we can do, or the nature and access to the kinds of materials we can use to build machines and, op- and operate them. 
It You're used to be raw, raw materials. Yeah, raw the raw the raw not just the raw materials, but the materials that we actually create. So, you, you know, copper uh, doesn't exist in pure form in nature. We figured out a long time ago how to get the copper atoms out of the ore, the rocks, and make pure copper. That's a that's a you know building a building a building out of rocks is where we started in wood mm -hmm. and leather because in bones because that's what's available like just harvest. But very early on, we figured out how to how to trick uh, and nature through information and new techniques and tools to um, tease the copper, if you like, out of the rock. Mm -hmm. We then we learned how to you know make polymers much later in, in human history, which allowed us to make things like pharmaceuticals and uh, and the, all the plastics that make so much possible in society, especially in in medical domains. Right? You'd have to argue that ninety percent of what's useful in medical domains is fabricated from a polymer metals metals the rest so that's the second domain what what are the what are the kinds of materials we can make as building blocks based on what nature has and we're getting we're getting better and better not only at uh, extracting materials from nature but using nature's properties using our understanding of it to make materials that don't exist in nature uh, like metamaterials that exhibit properties that don't exist naturally or Buckminster Fullerins. <laughs> exactly. You know, fullerenes, uh, carbon nanotubes, um, uh, and also biocompatible uh, semiconductors that we can implant in our bodies that our bodies don't reject, which is another way of saying we can make edible computers in a sense. <laughs> it's really. And then, yeah. of course, the, the third domain are the machines themselves, right? The whole class of things that we would call machines. A computer is a machine. A car is a machine. A 3D printer is a machine. A, weld a welding, uh, a welder is a machine. You know, a screwdriver, a hammer, these are machines. We we have to design and invent and, and make machines out of the, based on our knowledge of what, what's doable and, and our ideas and based on materials available, obviously to build the machines. But machines themselves occupy their own ecosystem, if you like. So the three, the three domains each have their own features of how they advance and get better. It's usually the case that, you know, you see an acceleration in one and not the other. We didn't get much acceleration in, in materials for a long, long time. There was huge change in material science in the 19th century with high strength steels. I mean, steel doesn't exist in nature. We invented steel by, you know, combining combining um, other metals, right? Notably, you know, uh, nickel and nickel and iron. Right. But those, what, what I'm contending is that the, the great industrial revolution that began, you know, 150 years ago, roughly, or 200 years ago, happened because of a confluence of advances in all three domains. In fact, 100 years ago, we had this great, you know, simultaneous boom in new kinds of capabilities in each of the domains. We had the dawn of, um, you know, modern information science and, and, and telecommunications, the telegraph and the, and the telephone, notably. As well as a boom in in information gathering machines, the microscope and the telescopes really took off and were very different hundred years ago than they are they were for the previous uh, periods of history. And we also had a boom in materials, you know, high strength steels and polymers, and and um, pharmaceuticals arrived roughly a century ago. And then we had a boom in machines. That was the invention of practical airplanes and cars and. Um, and, and mass production machines that they happen all at the same time. It was a really big deal. It propelled incredible growth in the 20th century. But and wasn't, this, wasn't a lot of this driven by the enlightenment and the whole idea yeah. of 
fans. I mean, uh, sure. it's, it's one thing if you look at, you know, I was looking at Will Durant's series, you know, he talks about the history of civilization. Yeah. And I mean, there was a period before the enlightenment when we were based on superstition and magic, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And weird stuff. And, and you know, it's funny because I look at this woke movement, the postmodernists, and they <laughs> want to, they want to get rid of basically the fundamentals of the enlightenment. And yet surely that's what led to science and the materials and machines and everything else. I mean, this sounds yeah. like a very dangerous movement, the whole postmodern idea. Well, it, well, it's dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous in the, in a whole, for a whole lot of reasons, not least to, you know, the advancement of, of reason and ability to understand how nature works and build machines is, has nothing to do at any fundamental level with people's skin color, their, 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 their uh, race, their, uh, their home, what country they were born in, um, you know, their sexual proclivities, gender, gender <laughs> nothing to do with any of that. Those things all matter in human relationships. We all, we've always cared a lot about those things and we know it throughout history because you can read it in, in, in uh, both in war fighting and in novels in both. <laughs> so that's, it's not disconnected from human nature, but what is disconnected from human nature and that, that part of human nature is what emerges as the tools that allow us to improve the human condition. Those are anchored in our understanding of the mechanics of nature and right. our ability to manipulate the, you know, the, the, the existence of atoms and forces around us that we understand them, we can manipulate them to our benefit. The, the fact that some of those things happen in some countries and not others, by some people, not others, I would argue is partly just happenstance and luck. Some of it has to do with the nature of the cultures that they happen in and the time and history they happen in. But to but to go back and pretend you can race that because of, we'll call it social biases, is, is, is of course, profoundly dangerous. I mean, put it very simplistically. The reason airplanes are safe is because we've learned a lot about aerodynamics, machine quality control of metals and machines and control systems. And th those things are not only agnostic to, to a race and social, social ideas, but more importantly, if you bend, if you bend those things to social outcomes, as opposed to what everybody I'm sure cares most about is flying safely, you end up not flying safely because you, exactly. what has to be sacrosanct is, you know, is not trying to get nature to bend to our social whims, but the rather to, to, to do the. Oh, I know. And I was reading the other day that they say that mathematics is racist and that they're going to have postmodern engineering. Now, of course, uh, the whole fun foundation of this postmodern stuff is, as, as I say, a rejection of logical decisions, yeah, yeah. evidence-based decision-making. They want to do it based on feeling and gender identity and things like that. I can't imagine building a bridge based on, <laughs> feeling and gender identity well, I mean, you know I, I i'll i'll be i will i will uh, you know we can concede something that is, is obviously the case human human beings have been throughout history and remain today have have biases we're that's how we are we're just we're not we're not machines so we have biases and there are, there are humans that are racist and more so and less so and people have done a lot of bad things so the so the, some of the movement, not, I'm not talking about the extreme end where we're doing really silly things, is is rooted in you know genuine grievances, let's say, and and, and yeah. misbehaviors of human beings. The problem is, you, once you acknowledge that, and oh, everybody would acknowledge that, that how you remedy 
our you know our social injustices uh, is not easy to figure out. But one thing we do know is you don't remedy it by pretending one plus one doesn't equal two. I mean, it's just an immutable <laughs> fact, and it's not maybe well, two. Say, it's always two. Well, yeah, they they keep saying that this is a white whale, white male Western dominated thing that this mathematics and science. And yet, I would think the Chinese would object to that statement. <laughs> well, so so would uh, so, so would the ancient Persians. Uh, yeah. A lot of a lot of our modern mathematical systems came out of of people who were of a different culture and race than 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 white Europeans. And in fact, the the history of mathematics is deeply rooted not just in China but also in in ancient <laughs> in ancient parts of the Middle East, which were most affirmatively not uh, Euro not European. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway. That, you know, it, it it's an interesting, one of the challenges I have in, in writing and doing work in being optimistic about technology and science broadly is that people ask me what you're doing implicitly is, you know, we have to recognize that we've, we live in a time where there's a lot of things to be unhappy about. We have a lot of conflicts and we have wars going on again in Ukraine. We have social conflicts over these issues that you're, you know, outlining in, in terms of, you know, woke leaning cultures and all the rest all that's true um you know i i began my book in the in the preface with a very brief one page reminder for people what was going on in the 1920s when we had a beginning of a huge technological boom we had a lot of very similar problems going on then socially and culturally it just come out of a horrific war world war one where we were gassing people and we had uh, the 1918s at, uh, you know, Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu, <laughs> again, you know, an invective against the Spaniards at the time, the, uh, yeah. which killed about three to four hundred percent more people per capita than the evil COVIDs, and killed the young, preferentially instead of the old, which is even oh. more horrific, obviously. Yeah. And, and and somehow somehow the world went on, and we invented things that made life better and pe more people more wealthy and helped eradicate massive swaths of abject poverty. So, you know, when you make that observation, people will say, wow, you, you know, the world's still got problems. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, this is hardly insightful. The point, the point is the technology progress occurs not independent of our, our human problems, but largely independent. It, it, they, they interact clearly, but it, in, in, the, the invention of the automobile that was practical occurred in, independent of the problems that we worried about in, in the society and the culture of the time. And yeah. the same is, same is going on today with modern technology. So I focused on that rather than our problems, because I think so much of what we're doing today is focused on, on our problems, which I find doesn't mean we shouldn't address them. It's, it's dispiriting to people. It depresses people. They don't think they have a bright future. And I'm, I guess I'm trying to paint a picture of a future that's potentially very bright if we don't go to, you know, do stupid things in wars and, and trying to find a way to at least accommodate our political social differences. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll be right back after the break. Mark is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, faculty fellow at the Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after the break. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. 
Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. America out loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. So I'm back with Mark Mills. He's an optimist towards the future. He's written some pretty amazing books. One included The Cloud Revolution, how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s. And he's also the host of the podcast, The Last Optimist. And that is something that I'll put on uh, right under the podcast. I'll put a link to it. So can you talk, Mark, Mark, about privacy and security concerns with the rise of digitization of our personal information? Yeah, it's not just the personal information digitization. I mean, obviously, everybody knows smartphone cameras really changed the game with respect to privacy invasion, not just convenience. And it, it, when you read the history of the advent of the first cameras and photography going back uh, you know, over a century, many of the same debates took place then. Um, it's fascinating how similar the, the discussion and the debates were then and now. Because think about, in some ways, when photography first became available to the common citizen, a lot of objection to this. And that was a bigger change in human history 
than the proliferation of cameras. I mean, you think about it. For having a hit, all of history, no cameras ever existed. You could never take a photograph. It didn't exist. You had to remember something. What what an incredible transformation in social uh, structure and legal structure. It was, they didn't want to have photographs being admissible evidence because you didn't know what the predicate to the photograph was. It could be, you know, you could, you could fake it, you know, fake photographs. Not that the photograph was fake, but it was staged, if you like. Yeah, so exactly. that. So we come to this era where we take cameras from everybody, you know, of a certain middle income capability. Pretty much everybody could own a camera up until the dawn of the smartphones. Everybody could own a camera that could take thousands of pictures anytime, anywhere. Much That was a change, but maybe not as big a deal in some senses. But anyway, that invaded privacy then and invaded privacy with the advent of this camera. Then you have the issue of my personal information being secure, especially as I put it in the cloud. Then you have security of currency and my, my not just my information, but my money. That you know, So you think about the the security of not having bad actors having access to important machines that if they've messed with can hurt people, hacking the grid or hacking control systems in a subway. So these are all features of security that by implication that your if your question got harder in a way, the more networked the society is, you do what security experts call increase your attack surface. Right? There's, mm -hmm. Obviously, there's more opportunity for bad actors. So you get security by with technology. <laughs> in the computing world, security has a feature that's just like security in the physical world. Mm -hmm. If you if you wanted to protect your gold, if you say you're carrying gold or any kind of money. Uh, and you don't want to have people have access to it. You would get the, the bigger and heavier the safe you have, but the more complicated the combination is, the more difficult it is for somebody to steal your gold. Mm -hmm. But that makes it harder for you to get access to your gold yourself. You can't carry it around as easily. Um, security has an overhead. It has a co physical cost. This is also true on computers. As I add, if I add features to the internet, features to your bank account, that make it harder for bad actors to get in, it makes it less convenient for you. Mm -hmm. uh, so th this is also solved through technology, but it's solved more easily in the digital world than it is in the physical world. There's really no easy way I can increase the security of you carrying around a lot of gold coins. You could carry a gun, I guess, depending on where you live, get a concealed carry permit. But yeah. you know, there's not a lot of options. The nice thing about the information domain is I can do the equivalent of a heavy safe uh, by making the safe less heavy in the virtual world, or put differently, the more powerful the computing becomes, the easier it becomes to make something the equivalent of a heavy safe. Two-factor authentication, which your you know, audience probably knows what that is, is a form of that. And the easier I make that, or facial recognition or fingerprint recognition, these new technology tools make it easier and easier to make the devices that I use and my information more secure. I think in that, and also, you know, computers that are powerful make it easier for bad actors to try to hack your system in, in the literal or figurative sense. But in that race, I think the, um, the, 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 the I mean, it's a typical, it's an inevitable race. But in that race, I mean, technology arguably um, is tilting increasingly towards benefiting the end user, the consumer, to have more secure, more mm -hmm. secure communications, more secure finances.
Yeah. Well, just the other day, I wanted to split a PDF file and my daughter said, oh, there's this tool on the web. And I <laughs> said, well, you have, and the trouble was it was a T4A form for yeah. one of my contractors and it included her social insurance number. So I said, well, you know, I don't really want to send it to the cloud to have this split into smaller documents, you know, actually, instead of one big PDF of a whole lot of documents. And is that a concern? I mean, if you actually use a tool that's in the cloud, to split documents, they have to sure. accept and receive the document and split it for you. They would then have access to the contents of your document, right? Sure. Well, so there's a couple of things. So first, there's no there's no real protection against true bad actors in in some sense. So in other words, the ability of the communication system that that you use to securely send the, that PDF to the cloud. You can, you can access, as you know, today and increasingly they'll become easier and more secure, specific communications channels that are more secure. So rather than being on the web, in the open web, when you you know log into virtual networks or other versions of the equivalent of that, they're far more secure in terms of the, the transmission of the data, harder for somebody to, to get. When it goes to the cloud, the central data centers, because they're central, have the ability to do very expensive things that you don't, you can't really afford as a, as a citizen or a small business. So they can become extremely secure, very difficult for bad actors to get, get into. And so it can be made very, very secure, but not perfect because all it takes is whatever the, whatever the thing you're doing, if it's valuable enough and your PDF file is not gonna be valuable enough. So I, in security, there's always this, how, you have to think about how valuable the target is. There's a certain level of security. You can make it not worth the effort to try to break the security because the thing you're trying to get is the equivalent of a $20 bill, not yeah. a stack of gold coins. So that PDF file is pretty easy to protect in the cloud. Yeah, it's, it'd be bad if it gets stolen, but you'd have to mount an, a level of effort and money spent on the level of effort that exceeds the economic value of stealing one social security number or a bunch of them. So- mm -hmm. There's that kind of again tension or balance. It's pretty typical in secure in, in security domains. Again, I'll, I'll say the, the the improvement, the rate of improvement of things like AI, which is used increasingly to monitor whether things are happening. What you're looking for, if you're that you're protecting something, is patterns. You're if you're watching a perimeter, you'll, the pattern you're looking for is motion, right? And you have the camera points automatically door. There's motion. So it's looking for a pattern. The pattern is motion, camera looks there. In the digital world, that's what machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence do. They look at patterns on inbound traffic into a secure data center for things that would resemble what a hacker is trying to do. And those have gotten very good. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have some friends who, who are volunteers in the freedom movement here in Canada. They call it freedom movement. And they're concerned that with uh, digitization of our health records and you know uh, personal IDs and banks going more and more to essentially crypto, that, that will eventually have a point where the government could turn off your money based on you know what they don't like about you and do sure. a system like they do in China with the social credit system, you know where you may decide that you can't get on the bus because your social credit score is being considered low. I mean, is this likely to happen in our society? Well. So it's happened in China. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I use the expression, I could change the expression in my book that that a lot depends on getting the politics right with respect to our future. 
not just the technology. And it is possible to Sovietize any economy. The Soviets proved that because the Russian economy, Russian people are certainly every bit as capable of Canadians and Americans uh, intellectually, personally, but they, they ruined their economy. They Sovietized it. China's mm-hmm. on track to doing on track to Sovietizing their economy. Whether Canada Sovietizes itself or U.S. is a is a political social question. Uh, I you know as a Canadian expat. I mean, I'm still Canadian. I grew up there. I went to school there. I yeah. hope and, and pray that my fellow Canadians won't let that happen politically. As as governments get closer to that behavior. In free societies, there's usually pushback. I hope that's we get a lot more pushback. Your friend's concerns are, of course, correct. If if all currency is digital, there's no cash, and it's all controlled by the government, then yeah, you could you one should worry about that. There's certainly an increase in digital transactions. Never mind cryptocurrency or, or, or digital currencies. We're doing the equivalent of a digital currency when you when you use your credit card uh, with you know. Tap with you know paying without swiping. With you use that with your phone, you can do that. That's yeah. that's a digital transaction which is recorded and can be monitored, or mm. stopped, or tracked. And, and we we know that infamously with what happened in Canada with the electronic oh, exchange of contributions to the truckers' protest. So yeah, we won't go. Right. So, but if you had somebody you know a hundred dollar bill, uh, this is a lot harder to track. W- w- will governments ban cash? Certainly, I would say it seems extremely improbable in the United States. I would say in the foreseeable future, impossible. Is it possible in Canada? I, I'm not quite as adamant, but I, I'm close to as adamant that that won't happen. Are yeah. people using less cash? Yeah, but it's interesting. If you look at the recent data, you know, digital currency transactions using credit cards with your phones, uh, they've certainly increased as they... You measure it as a percentage of total amount of money flowing, mm-hmm. but if you look at it in terms of the total transactions, the in, the amount of transactions that are occurring using cash, usually it's small transactions, is actually going up, not down. So people okay. pe- people are using cash still. They like to have access to cash, and of course, cash is has the, what a benefit other than the serial number on the bill you're using. Um, you know, nobody knows where you've kept it or who you gave it to. Well, yeah, in this group that I that I meet with every Friday, they want to pay for everything as much as possible with cash uh, because they don't like the tracking. And I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? Sure. Well, if you know, if you're giving somebody a, a tip, they uh, they can choose whether to report it or not to the government for taxing well, that's, it. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which of uh, course, is what governments, all taxing governments. When you're, if you're, a, you know, in the service industry, they sort of assume, <laughs> they assume you're lying, and they they have formulas that, you know, uh, calculate the probable level of your unreported income and all that kind of stuff. But look, yeah. uh, that that's a form of that's an inverse issue of the security. Like I, there's a lot of security of my personal behaviors attached to transacting with cash. So if I if I undertake transactions without cash that can be easily tracked, they might be more secure in a sense of somebody stealing it, but they're less secure in terms of protecting the information about what I did with that money. And oh, yeah. 
it, uh, th- those are different things. And, and, you know, I think we're going to have cash around for a very long time because mm-hmm. people like, like to use it and want to use it for those reasons and others. Yeah. It, we only have about uh, 12 minutes left in this one really big topic that I think our listeners would it's, love to hear your opinion really, on. Really this, wide, wide, huge, yeah. huge issues. <laughs> Are the concerns that robots will replace humans in the work phase, workplace, are those warranted or are those just science fiction? Well, there, I love science fiction, let's just stipulate. And I love robots. There's a lot about robots in my books. <laughs> but robots aren't going to replace humans in the workforce in the way people imagine. That is, yes, they're going to replace people in the workforce. They already have, you know, the bolted down robots that, that you know, one arm welding machines and other handling machines, which have proliferated in manufacturing, have replaced people. Of course they have. But they haven't eliminated the need for human labor. So th- there's two, they get conflated and confused. Uh, we have been trying to automate tasks since the beginning of industries going back to uh, probably before written history, certainly for all written history. We try to automate tasks to reduce the quantity of labor to produce the same output. That's called productivity in economics terms. That's how wealth is created. We want to do more of that and we need better robots to do more of it, which will result in humans moving to other tasks that robots can't do upskilling humans, paying them higher wages, moving them out of more da- out of dangerous environments, which is where robots often go first. And I, I think that we're on the cusp of a of a revolution in what robotics can do as big as the advent of the first form of robot, if you like, is mass production. The automa- the, you know the mass production line, the automation of the conveyor belts and machines that move and pick things. That revolution of the 20th century brought huge increases in the efficacy of producing products and goods, reducing costs. But the, the, that form of automation, loosely speaking, robots, uh, isn't maxed out, but it's you know reaching its asymptotic efficiencies. Mm-hmm. What's next are mobile robots, robots that can do those things working alongside us in the environments that we're in instead of, in effect, the machines adapt to our environment instead of humans having to adapt to what the machines can do in a fixed environment. So I think it's a, it's a huge, huge potential boom in productivity coming and pretty quite unlike anything since again, the industrial revolution, but it is being portrayed as, you know, robots are going to take over human jobs. Yes, they will. The Luddites were right. The automated loom replaced, replaced humans doing weaving, but it didn't eliminate Employment. We have a we have the inverse problem in, in in the world today in the Western world. We have we have more jobs than humans willing and able to work. We 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 need robots right now. So you don't see a mass unemployment problem coming because of robots. I, 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 we have the, the exact inverse. We have a underemployment problem that could only be solved with robots because we're not because we can build new robots faster than we can create an increase in the population. That's that, uh, the working that, population. That's interesting because. Elon Musk, he very much opposes the idea that we have to reduce the world's population down to a billion or something. You know, he thinks that, no, we need people. We need the, the new geniuses that will come if we have a high population. Um, so I, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I know the exponential growth of population has stopped and we're actually seeing a slower growth. Uh, and so some of the forecasts of 12 billion are not likely to happen. But do you see population as being a problem, generally speaking? No, I, I'm in the other camp. 
And I agree with Elon Musk, who has, who has said in various times in various ways recently that we need more babies. We don't have enough people. We don't have we don't have a overpopulation problem. We have an, uh, an under baby problem globally in uh, the Western world and increasingly in the other parts of the world. So it, that can't be turned around demographically very quickly. It's a long cycle. Those it may turn around. We'll see. In the meantime, we need more robots to fill the growing. Uh, working age population uh, shortage. Mm-hmm. So, so the whole idea of depopulation, you heard D- Bill Gates and others talking about this. This doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, the West is depopulating itself, which is very bad. It's the first time in human history there'll be more old people than young people. It's what's ha- oh, going to yeah. happen. This is not good for uh, economies, not good for society, not good for innovation. It's, 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 a, it's overall a, a bad thing. The physical environment can easily handle many more people than are on Earth, probably 10 times more people than are on Earth with the with the advances that are coming in technology. So we don't have we don't have a resource or energy or material or environment problem. We, we have to use Elon Musk line again. We don't have enough babies and that'll take a while to turn around. It's a cultural thing that will have to shift. It might. That's a subject for another day in another book. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's apparently more forest now in New England than there was at the time of the Civil War, and that's because of technology. I mean, no, the, the whole the, the whole North American North continent America. has more forest now than, the, than than when the continent was settled or invaded by by the Europeans. Right. Yeah. Oh, is that right? So this whole idea that you know the population has destroyed the environment—it's actually as technology advances, we're doing less destruction. Well, across all measures, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, to end off, you know, we just have a, three or four minutes to go. Uh, what reasons are there to be optimistic about the future of our society and all these technological developments? You said lots of things, but I wonder if you want to add anything to that. Well, the reason for optimism is uh, anchored in uh, my redefining optimism. It's called realism. If we look back over history, the, all of the conditions for, that lead to more people living longer lives, healthier lives, not perfect, all those conditions have improved radically. That's all happened because of technology advance. So you have to believe that technology is not advancing anymore to believe that there's not more progress to be made in improving the human condition. So since technology progress hasn't ended, but it's accelerating, then the realistic view, which is now labeled an optimist view, is that all the things we want to improve the human condition are going to continue to improve, maybe even at an accelerating rate. Now, that's interesting because that's very contrary to what the extreme environmentalists say. They say <laughs> you know, we have to basically go back to the 1800s. And yet <laughs> it strikes me that that's a recipe for massive death because, you know, we built up to 8 billion through the use of high technology and through the use of fertilizers and through the use of actually increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. I mean, if we actually did what these people want, I mean, surely this would result in huge deaths across the world. Yeah, they want they want us to deindustrialize. Uh, they want depopulation and deindustrialization. They have been candid about it. I'm not. It's not an invective. Uh, yeah. it, I think it's immoral and anti-human, and uh, uh, and it will lead to uh, more destruction of the environment because poor people can't take care of the environment in the broadest sense. So. Uh, I'm I I like most people are am an environmentalist in the sense so I want a better, cleaner safer environment that comes from technology and wealth and they are they are destroying both both wealth and progress with their policies 
Well, and they also don't seem to value humans. And it's interesting. <laughs> there's, a group, there's a group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Yeah. And there are thousands of members of this. And, you know, the thing that's strange about them is they say, well, we're not going to all commit suicide because, of course, that would be the end of their movement. But the bottom line is they want us not to have children so that, you know, they're, they're not appreciating all the incredible, marvelous things, the Mozarts and the trips to the moon. And, you know, no, they're, they're philosophically misguided and they're anti-human. I, I agree. It's sad. But there yeah. have always been there's always been these kind of fringe groups in uh, human history and they're, they're still here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I was inter- interviewing John Shanahan last week on this program. And he was saying that for some people, he's not saying all of them, but for some people, the drive to green energy, which cannot power our society, is a drive to depopulation. And they're happy with that. You know, well, some, have- yeah, some, some of the environmental groups, the more honest ones have been candid about that. So, but we've covered uh, a rather uh, uh, broad range of things from philosophy and humanism. To- <laughs> but I really yeah. appreciate this. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Well, well, you know, I'd be great to have you back on another another program because it really does touch on a lot of things. And that's the whole idea of postmodernism replacing the ideas of the Enlightenment. I mean, God, this is dangerous. So, Mark, it's been great having you on today. Thank you for having me. I'd be delighted to come back and talk about posthumanism and postmodernism and all the rest oh, of it. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Well, my guest today has been Mark Mills who had a career in engineering and science, and he discussed amazing topics with us today and an optimistic program that should especially inspire young people to study science and technology because that's one of the keys to having a great future. So this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the screen.